Amen. Well, it has been a blessing to be here. There it is. Amen. And uh, as for chapter 3, I kind of teased about it a little bit. And uh, faith becomes sight. And uh, this morning, God saw. But tonight, Israel got to see. And uh, they're going to get to see revival. Is everybody okay? Feels a little tense tonight. Can we pray first before we go any further? And uh, some of you men that are walking with the Lord, would you pray and ask the Lord to break up fallow ground? Or I don't know what's going on. I don't know the church family. But it uh, seems like there was a lot more liberty in the previous services. And I'm not trying to speak out of turn. If I am, you can give me a signal or something. And so I know in our church we've had revival services. And it always seems like somewhere during the conference, there's a service that hits and everything tightens up. And if we as a church family obey, that's when it breaks out in a good way. And there's been a few times where someone in our church family didn't obey. And um, service was good, and the service ended, and that was that. And I don't, I don't ever like that to be the case. And um, different things, but uh, typically what I found, and in, in, uh, let me share this illustration just I'm not going to give names, but we uh, were in the middle of revival. I don't know if you all were there, but Dr. McDerris was preaching, and he called me up onto the platform, and he said, Pastor, you're going to be put on trial. I'm going to grill you, ask you some questions. And he's going to do that with some different people in the audience, and uh, basically asked me uh, a couple of questions, and you know, I answered the questions, and then he called. There was a visiting preacher that's well-known in our area. Called him up onto the platform. And uh, he asked the man a question, and uh, the, I think the question it must have embarrassed him because he gave an answer that was a fleshly answer. It wasn't a bad answer, but it wasn't spiritual. And you could just feel whoosh, the meeting turned right there. Now... I don't want to stop that illustration on a bad note. About two years later, that preacher called me up and he said, Preacher, God has not let me go for two years. I need Brother Zeb's number. I need to apologize to him. I called and made things right. He apologized to me for not answering the right way, you know, thinking the wrong thoughts during that service. But that, that's my point. And uh, I don't know what's going on. I really don't. But... Um, Something is, and I don't know if it can be a number of things. The Lord may be leading someone to salvation, and they're resisting. It may be a, an anger. It may be a family issue. It may be just worry, doubt, fear. It could be that God's been on you all week to get something right. And uh, what I tell our church is as soon as the service begins, the altar's open. If the Lord says go to the altar, you don't wait for the invitation. It's already in place. It's always open. And uh, we have seen in our church, in the service, people get up and come to the altar and just start weeping and crying, and others flood around them. Sometimes it's people getting up and going to other people in the church family, getting things right. And so um, I'm just going to pray before we go any further. Father, Lord, we come before your throne tonight humbly asking that you would, as... Uh, 
Lord David cried out in Psalm 139, Search us, search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Father, I pray that you would tonight work in our hearts. Lord, we know that you're able. But we also know from Scripture, Father, that we as human beings have the same unfortunate ability that Israel had when the Bible records that they limited the power of the Holy One. God, may that not be said of us. Lord, may our hearts be right with you. May we be in tune. And Father, however you lead, whatever you're trying to do in each one of our lives individually, God, help us to trust you. Help us to obey. Father, if there's fallow ground that needs to be broken up, help that to be the case. If there's stony ground that needs the hammer of the word of God to break up the rocks and make things tender and soft and pliable and usable and plantable, Lord, may that work take place tonight. Father, we know that you're able. Lord, search my heart if there's anything in me that would, would hinder this revival, God. I pray that you would show it to me. Lord, bless us, help us, I pray. Speak to our hearts tonight, Father. May you be honored and glorified. Father, may the desire for revival just not be just a song that we sing or some words that we express, but God... Bring revival to our country, but Lord, we want it and know that it must start in each one of us individually. So, Father, revive us again. Help us. Bless our time together tonight, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As for chapter 3, there's uh, some revival that breaks out, and uh, that's where I want to spend our time tonight. I'm thankful that we serve a God who is able to revive I am not one of those pastors, preachers, Christians, whatever category they fit in, that believes that we are past the point where God can bring revival again. I think God can do whatever he wants to do. (laughs) And uh, I want to see revival. Now, uh, let me just clarify a couple of things before I go on, and that is um, revival is not a, a meeting, okay? Revival is not, you know, a... Down south, they use different terms when they describe meetings. Amen? <laughs> we have meetings in the north. They have meetings in the south. Okay? There's just a few differences. And uh, some of their meetings, they know it's good when the hankies are waving, when the tears are flowing, when the snots are flying. Whoo, that's good right there. Well, that's not necessarily a revival. Because there are folks that can put on a good show. And I'm not just talking from behind the pulpit because there are some preachers that can put on a good show. A friend of mine was an evangelist, and first few years he started out, he came off the road, and we were talking one day, and he said, you know, I've been absolutely shocked at things that I've learned on the road. He had an evangelist tell him that he carried an onion in his pocket so he could work himself into some tears when he was going to the pulpit. Don't just sit there and watch a show and think, oh, so wonderful. Your spirit should bear witness with my spirit that these are the things of God, not just a show. 
Well, there's not just preachers that can put on shows. There's Christians in the pew that can put on a show. Amen. We got a guest preacher. We all got to be on our best behavior. Now, I asked my church to do that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Please don't embarrass me. <laughs> kind of like, you know, we tell our kids, Ramey's coming over, best behavior. <laughs> right? You got a visitor, got a guest coming. I'm just kind of trying to lighten it up a little bit here to crack some jokes. So bear with me for a moment. I'm going to just kind of fish around a little while and see where the Lord wants me to drop in, okay? So the point being is that um, anybody can put on a show. But a show is not where God shows up. And, and I believe the heart's desire is that God would show up. Listen, there have been some great revivals in history. The, the New Hebrides Islands revivals mentioned this morning in, what's the town you mentioned? The Isle of Lewis. Um, G. Campbell Morgan was given an invitation to come to the island and preach. He was in England, I believe it was, and there were great meetings going on, and the Lord was moving, and he really didn't want to leave, but something told him he was supposed to go. And he came into this meeting, and he, and he showed up that afternoon, and the guys that picked him up at the boat were carrying him to his room first to drop his things off, and then right over to the church. And basically, along the way, they looked at him, and they said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you can go back and look the story up and read it, but these guys asked him, are you serious? Do you want God to move? Because if you're not here for real, then you need to go back home. That's it right there. Preach it. Amen. That's it. If you're not here for real, if it's not serious to you, you have to understand God's not going to show up. Now, the back story to those young men asking that question was there were two widow ladies, I guess, in their late 80s, 90s, something like that. And they got a burden for their church and their town, their community. They got a burden for God to show up and for revival to sweep through and to happen. So they began to pray and they began to pray and they began to pray. And it was more than a year that they began to pray. And then some young men in the church decided they heard about it. They wanted to pray too. So they started meeting in a barn on Tuesday nights and just some men in the church getting together, spending time in prayer. And finally, one night, one of the young men stood up, and I forget the reference in Psalms, but, but the man said this, how can we ask God for revival until we first are clean? And, the, and the, the psalmist said that we must cleanse our hearts, our dirty hands, before God will show up. So they prayed and they prayed. Nothing happened. A year they prayed. Two years they prayed and they prayed. And they're desiring, they're hoping, they're wishing, they're praying. And then Brother Morgan showed up that night and preached a simple message. He was serious. There was no explosion. There was no shouting, running aisles. But he said, when I finished preaching, nobody moved. And he said, I can't describe it. There was a holy hush. And it just stayed. And it stayed. So there was more preaching, more singing. Nobody wanted to leave. Nobody wanted to go home. God was going to do something. Well, they walked out. He walked out of the church building later that night. And there were people all over the hillside huddled in prayer. And the Bible, the story that they share, uh, the title of it is When God Came Down. Throughout the night, here's when you know revival sets in. 
men were going to the police station confessing and admitting crimes. People were dropping in the ditch, crying out to God, begging for mercy that he would save them before they slipped into hell and spent eternity separated from God. Nobody had to go door knocking. Folks were trembling in their homes because the Spirit of God was moving, convicting, drawing. And listen, it took time for that to happen. It doesn't just, and a show happens. God can bring revival. God can revive a work. In Ezra chapter 3, we have this situation here where Israel had been worshiping strange gods. They had not followed God. They'd not been following the commandments of God. The prophets had preached. The priests had tried. Some were good. Some were not. There were evil kings and some who did right in the sight of the Lord, but they were few. And Israel was a mess. And God was proclaiming judgment. And Israel just flat didn't give a rip. You can read the Old Testament and you might as well swap Israel for America in the actions of the country. What do I mean? They would be in desperation and they'd cry out to God and God would bless. And in their blessings, they would forget God. And God would have to do something to get their attention. Three and a half years of no rain. Famine. Different things. Sometimes smaller areas. Well, finally, God said, listen, there's a line drawn in the sand. You cross that line, judgment's coming. You know how it is. We can always take care of it tomorrow. I can leave this in here for a little while longer. I'm not hurting anybody else. Is everybody okay? What are your eyes looking at online? What are you partaking of? I know, no, 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 preacher. We got a great church. Everybody loves the Lord. We're walking with him. Praise God if you are, but not everybody is. The Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Smartphones have created a dearth because you can call up any trash on that little device and it's that easy. And people definitely get addicted to it. I'm not talking bluntly because we have children in the audience. I'm being respectful of the, the difference of age. But I believe as adults, we know exactly what I'm talking about. A little sin is not okay. God's not going to bless it. I'm not hurting anybody, and yet you are. Relationships are impacted. Church bodies are hurt. Is everybody okay? Okay. Revival can happen. God can show up. God can do a mighty and a great work. But we have to have prepared hearts and be a prepared people and be able, willing, and meet the requirements of revival. 
Israel disobeyed God. Judgment came. Babylon showed up one day. Nobody in Israel woke up and said, hey, I wonder which day Babylon's coming. Let's see, uh, maybe a couple more weeks we got. No. You see, God is, he gives us a space of grace. He gives us a time to make things right. Listen, you can hold on to your hurt and your bitterness. In a crowd this size, guess what? I'll bet some of you grew up in homes where your parents weren't right. I grew up in a preacher's home. My dad, flat, had a temper. He loved God. He walked with the Lord. But it didn't take very long for the flesh to show. Oh, yeah. It was military all the way and rah. So, oh, yeah, there was living in fear. The fear of God and the fear of dad. Well, here's what happened. The devil came and parked on my shoulders and little thoughts like this sprouted up in my head. Your dad's a preacher. He shouldn't have a temper. He shouldn't yell like that. Amen. Now, your family's probably perfect. Amen. No issues, no, no struggles. But I'm just telling you, mine had them. My dad was born in the living room of his aunt and uncle's house. And his biological parents, who were drunks, got up and walked out and said, we don't want him. I found out as a senior in high school, came home from school one day, there's these two strangers in my house, two old people, and I said, Dad, who's that? Well, those are your biological grandparents. Okay, what do I do with that news? <laughs> I've got grandparents, Grandpa and Grammy Perkins, those are my grandparents, I don't care who that, anyway. Uh, point being is this, the devil's hard at work and he's got all kinds of mess ups and mistakes and issues and problems in all kinds of families. And uh, we have a choice to give God the glory and work through it and get healed from it and praise him and show him through our lives or to succumb to it and live under the burden of it and make decisions and react and treat others the way we were treated. So I grew up in that preacher's home and I thought everything in life only had to do with the ministry. I felt like dad treated everybody else in the church better than he treated us. He had time for the church. He didn't have any time for us. And all the whole load piling up on me. Went to travel out one, uh, the summer of 89. This is part of the backstory of how things got right for me to meet my wife. Got out to this training program. This guy was a, a retired Navy officer, and he had about 30 college guys come through every summer and put us through five weeks of boot camp. Up at the crack of dawn, physical exercises, spiritual exercises, preaching. We never knew whether we were coming or going. He had us doing all kinds of stupid, crazy things. Go out in the parking lot and act like retards. Flop around on the, on the sidewalk for a while. I want to hear loud noises and groans and screams and hollers and whatever. He did everything he could to get us to stop being proud. Worried about what people think of us. Brought us into Denver, Colorado, and he's marching us down the street when we're singing the booster song for Neighborhood Bible Time. In formation, boys, right now. Hoop, hoop, hoop. And he walks by, and there's this old guy watching us. Now, mind you, I've, first time I've ever been to the state of Colorado. We're in Denver, big city, and this guy's watching us. So Brother Holmesher goes over, starts witness to the guy, and the guy's asking what's going on. 
And uh, he said, well, those boys don't look too bad. I used to be a DI. So Brother Holmesher takes his whistle off and says, here, march them around for a while. <laughs> we had a family uh, treat all the guys out to lunch. Boulder, Colorado, in a salad bar restaurant right beside, it was a part of University of Colorado Boulder. So what does Brother Holmesher do? We're going to tell the restaurant staff, thank you. Everybody get out on the sidewalk and sing the booster cheer. We are boosters, Bible time boosters. Everywhere we go, people want to know. Oh, yeah, motions and everything at the top of your voices or you're singing it again. All these college students our same age walking by. And then some of them. Just trying to get us to stop getting embarrassed over every little thing. So he's doing all these things and finally takes us down about Thursday morning. Sit down in the auditorium. Pull out a sheet of paper. I want you to write down your earliest memory. And we start writing. He starts asking questions, rapid fire. And basically what he's trying to do is hunt for the hurt. He wanted to find out what's driving you guys. What motivates you? What's your foundation for making decisions? And I'm sitting there thinking and listening and writing and thinking and listening and writing and the questions that he asked and the verses that he was sharing and the things that he was talking about. All of a sudden I realized the reason that I hadn't wanted to go to Bible college is I was so angry and bitter at my dad. I had to go out that afternoon and call my dad in the state of Maine from Colorado and apologize to him and make things right because I felt in my heart that if I continued, now that I knew what was going on, if I continued with that anger and bitterness towards my dad, God wouldn't bless me all summer. You know, my dad didn't realize I was bitter towards him. Husbands and wives, is your relationship okay? If you're bitter towards your spouse, you say, well, women are the ones who get bitter. Now, Colossians says, husbands, be not bitter against your wives. It's a two-way street. I hadn't even planned to go in this direction, but here we are. I don't know what's going on in your heart, in your life, but if revival's going to hit... We have to be right with him. Amen. Now, here's the blessing we can. <laughs> There's not a sin deep enough, dark enough, or bad enough that God cannot forgive. Amen. And not only that, unlike human beings, God forgives the sin, casts it in the sea of his forgetfulness. Amen. Now, this is, this is Perkinsology. I, don't have, I have scripture for it, but it's my interpretation of it, Okay. Or my application, let's put it that way. In the book of Revelations, the Bible says this little line, and there was no more sea. I just have it in my heart that that's the sea where he cast all of our sin. It's just me. But I know this, God chooses to not only forgive me, but to forget what I've done. So that I can walk forward with him with a clean conscience, with a right spirit. So, Israel's in 
Wakes up one morning, Babylon comes screaming in, wiping people out, stealing children, taking them back captive. We looked at the three Hebrew lads. I don't know about you, but as a parent, I'd rather have them kill me than for, to have them leave me behind and carry my kids off. It was a desperate time. For 70 years. 70 years of captivity. I can't even fathom that. That means there were children born in captivity. Finally, we get down to Ezra chapter 3, and I am getting there. We get down to Ezra chapter 3, and the king, and that's a wonderful story to go out back in and see how God is working over here to prepare for over there. It's a good, good thing to read Esther and find out who this king was and all these relationships. This king needed a Jewish stepmama to prepare his heart to be the one to let the Jews go back and rebuild. We think it's all bad, and yet in the midst of the trial, the tribulation, in the midst of the punishment, the discipline, God's hand was at work. Amen. Setting Vashti aside over here, bringing in Esther to be the queen, and who was their son? Oh, huh. it's a good study, amen? Ezra chapter 3, let's read verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set, as the, uh, and, and they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those con countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the fast of tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the con uh, continual burnt off offering, both of the new moons and all of the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer the burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and the carpenters, the meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedars, cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and Levites, and all they that would come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20... Um, years old and upward, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Yeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel, and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forth the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men 
that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shouting of joy from the noise of the weeping with the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Father, once again, we thank you for who you are, and we pray, God, that you would take the word of God this evening, use it to speak to our hearts, to challenge us, Lord. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. For about 70 years now, they have been in ruins. Things have not been going well for Israel, but now Zerubbabel is leading a group. He's been given permission. He's going back to rebuild the temple. We read the story. I want to jump right in. And uh, before I jump in, let me just say this. As the rebuilding of the temple started, you begin to get this picture that the affliction was beneficial. How was the affliction beneficial? The people were united in action. When persecution comes to a group of Christians, all of a sudden, all the petty differences fade away. We've seen it throughout history. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We see it. When the oppression from the outside comes, all of a sudden, all these little things that we thought were so important, we realize they're really not the issue. God's people came together. They made a right beginning of their work. You notice what we read? All of a sudden, everything was as it was written. Not, well, I think we should do it this way. Opinions were set aside. We need God. What does his word say? That's how Moses said to do it. That's how it's written. That's how we're going to do it. Hallelujah. Affliction. They made a right beginning. Uh, Their worship began just as Moses had instructed. Once again, they were offering the offerings, the burnt offering. Everything was as it is written. The worship was accompanied with gifts. A people coming out of slavery and captivity, as they began, as revival began to stir in their hearts, as they began to go through these steps, all of a sudden, they began to give. One of the signs of a revived heart, amen. There was a holy joy, sweet and bitter tears at the same time as the first stones were laid. This evening, I want to preach about revival. There's a a pattern for it here, if you can call it that, in this chapter. Let me begin very quickly. Number one, the reestablishment of worship. In verses one through six, the reestablishment of worship. America worships entertainment. America worships a 401k, the retirement plans. America worships all kinds of things. And by the word worship, I mean that we give our finances, our time, and our attention to that. Now listen, I have no problem with retirement. The Bible is clear that we should lay up for our son's sons or our children's children. Uh, uh, Having some things in advance is not against God's word. But that should not be why we're living. Amen. Amen. I don't have any problem with a family owning a good car unless the good car owns them. If you've got to take another job to make the $1,000 a month payment, you might could probably use a cheaper vehicle. Amen. Nothing wrong with possessions until the possessions possess us. 
then we have to set time, we have to set God aside because we got to go and do this more, we got to do this more, and I can't give the faith promise quite as much because I got these obligations over there. Amen. I told our church years ago, it's amazing. We'll go and find this, this ultimate vehicle we've been looking for. And uh, now ultimate for me and ultimate for you may be two different things. That's absolutely fine. I'm not talking about any class, style, brand or anything. I'm just saying you think about it. And uh, people will go out. I mean, we're coming up on Black Friday. People already organizing their Black Friday experience. Anyway. It's 60% off. It's only $3,000. Not a car. Whatever, okay? You realize that the six months leading up to, they raised it about 40%. It's just a side note. Anyway, <laughs> point being is this. We will let everybody know how great of a job we got, or how great of a deal we got when we just spent three grand. Then we say we gave three grand emissions, and people are like, what, are you crazy? Amen. They reestablished worship. They reestablished worship. Reestablished worship. What am I talking about? Isaiah chapter 6, in, in reading those first few verses, it may be very familiar to you, but Isaiah worshiped God. How did that worship take place? He went into the temple thinking he was going into worship. But then all of a sudden, Something happened, something transpired, and the Bible records that Isaiah lifted up his eyes and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And immediately he saw himself as a man of unclean lips living in a nation and a perverse people. And he began to confess sin as the prophet, as the man of God, as the one leading the nation spiritually, as one used of God to record that book we have in our Bible, he realized that compared to the holy God, he was wicked and undone. So why do we think we're okay? Tell you why, because we're so busy justifying all the little things that we don't think are very big things, we never experience real revival. Yep. Revival's available, but God's not going to compete with our flesh. This morning I talked about no no. Amen. I said I'd give you the rest of the story now for the rest of the story. I can't do Paul Harvey's voice. Those of us old enough to know who that is uh, can appreciate that. The younger generation just look at me like, amen. <laughs> um, we went up to start the church in Billabid Prison. And uh, Nonong had a four-life sentence. He'd killed four people, and uh, they gave him a life sentence for each one. He knew he was never getting out of prison. Most of the time when guys get that sentence and realize they're never getting out, they become very angry and bitter men. And then they feel like they can do whatever they want inside because how much more of a punishment can you give me than four life sentences? Why don't you give me 10? <laughs> What's going to make the difference, right? So uh, Nonong's there and he, he greeted me and I went and found him. We went around, we passed out gospel tracts. 
And it took a while for no, no. We went in and started the church. We started a Bible Institute and I'm discipling these guys and working with these guys. And uh, I found out very quickly that uh, I didn't need to just go in there and preach all the time. We needed to sit down and, and answer questions and study the word of God so they could dig in and get a foundation in their lives. And I, and I began to watch as our little group turned into a little larger group and we began to grow. But God began to change the hearts of men in prison. Their lives began to change and it was a stir. It was a thrill in my heart. And one time the, uh, we, I went into prison and the guys there, you could tell there was a buzz of excitement going on about something. And I said to Nonong, I said, I don't know what happened, what's going on. And uh, he said, well, they have, uh, they've declared a talent contest in the prison. Part of the rehabilitation program, Amen. And so the guy's got something to do. And so uh, Nonong said, uh, we, our, our choir got together and we're going to write a song and we're going to enter the talent contest. And I said, what kind of song are you writing? Because all the other guys were doing dance and, you know, rock out to Jesus or whoever else and secular songs and, you know, just whatever. is a talent contest. They kept it all secret. Nonong wrote a song. I don't want to forget to give the rest of the story, so I'm going to give it first because sometimes I get too excited, amen. Uh, they won the talent contest with a guitar. No dancing. Sang a song. Nonong wrote this song. Basically, my interpretation, paraphrasing it, we are the trash of the world. We were in the gutters. Nobody cared about us. Everybody kicked us aside. But then one day we met the trash collector. And he picked us up. And he changed our lives. And he set us upon a solid rock. And now we get to help and to serve the garbage collector. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying that those men wrote that song and it was worship from their heart, their appreciation, their gratitude, their love for the one that reached down into the miry pit, plucked them up out of that old life and set their feet upon a solid rock and established their goings and not just that, chose to use them and work through them as they began to win souls for Christ and build a church body and a Bible institute with 20 men studying for the ministry, going out into the different parts of the prison, into the hospital and holding Bible studies and, and discipleship and all of that. Worship needs to be reestablished. What is worship anyway? Can I tell you the world we live in today, when you say the word worship, they think about praise and worship. Let me tell you about worship. Go over to Job chapters 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going through quickly. But my point being is this. Job wakes up one morning and he sacrifices for himself and his wife and his children just in case they might have forgot that day. He's having a wonderful time. He's walking with the Lord. He doesn't know the accuser's been before the throne and lied about him and tried to get God to allow Satan to mess with his life to turn him against God. Job doesn't know that. We do because we're reading the story from the Bible. 
Job was oblivious to all of that. He didn't know what spiritual battle or what spiritual warfare was going on. He just woke up and sacrificed. He's having a great day until the first servant arrives. All the crops are gone. Servant arrives. All the sheep, all the, the oxen, everything's gone. And then when that final servant arrived and said, all 10 of your children were having a get-together in the house and a whirlwind came and smote the four corners of the house and all 10 of your children have died. I've held some funerals for babies. We had a young lady we were working with, trying to reach her. She was on the borderline. Dad was a Christian. The mom had died because of health complications. She was angry and bitter at God. She went out and she was with child. Driving down the interstate, something happened. She felt something happen. They rushed to the hospital and the baby died. Two weeks before delivery, three weeks, one week. Went into the hospital chapel. The family asked me to come in and do the funeral service. There was a perfectly formed, beautiful baby boy. That was the toughest funeral I've ever done in my life. Now, Job's children were not infants, but there was 10 empty graves dug. And he laid all 10 of his children in at one time. But you know what the Bible says? He left off from hearing that news and he went and worshiped God. Can I tell you that he wasn't turning on the smoke machine and the strobe light and putting the drums on and dancing around the room? Praise and worship is not worship. We should praise the Lord. We should be thankful for him. But there's a worship that God is looking for that is not an emotional thing. We have wonderful feelings after. But this worship is an act of our will. It is a communion with God. It is an accepting of what God is allowing in our lives. It is a thanking God for whatever is going on. It is a trusting of God that no matter how this looks right now, we know, we believe that God is good enough, big enough, able enough to carry us through, take care of and provide everything needed to make it to the other side. The reestablished Reestablishment of worship. Before they tried to rebuild the temple, they first worshiped. Before they laid the foundation, they first worshiped. I'm saying to you this evening, as a church family, you have a worship service, but individually we must learn as God's children how to worship Him. You say, well, preacher, how do I do it? It's an individual basis. But I know this, sometime you need to shut the phone off, you need to turn the notifications off, you need to turn the TV off, you need to turn the radio off, you need to turn off every digital device that you own. You need to get somewhere where you can get alone with God and just open your eyes and look up and begin to thank God for everything you see. 
Thank him for the grass. Thank him for the trees. Thank him for the hills. Thank him for the mountains. Thank him for the sun. Thank him for the rain. Thank him for this. Thank him for that. Thank him for your wife. Thank him for your husband. Thank him for your children. Thank him for job. Thank him for everything you can think of and just keep repeating and then begin to tell him how good he is. He's God and he enjoys it. He deserves it. He's worthy of our praise. God, you're good. I'm sick. My body's frail. I'm weak, but you're good. My dad died, but you're good. My mom's health isn't that well, but you're good. There's problems over here. There's problems over there, but you're good. And don't do it for three minutes. That's not enough. You need to worship in that vein until tears begin to flow. You tell me, let me tell you something. There's a lot of hard-hearted Christians. And I was one. You grow up in the ministry, you get used to it all. You see the same things all the time. Hear the same songs. You see others moved and you kind of expect it. You have all the answers to the questions that can be asked. Because you're the preacher's kid, the missionary's kid. You know it. I was down at Grace and had revival. Brother Mike Adams came in to preach it. He was a Rock of Ages missionary. And uh, before the service, he said, uh, the pastor said, we're going to have prayer time. I'm Mike Adams. If you've never met him, he's an old Cajun. He's about 6'2", 6'3", 300 pounds. Just a big guy. He's not fat. He's just big. And this big old giant of a man got down on his face in our prayer room And the first word out of his mouth, as soon as he started talking, he just started weeping and blubbering like a baby. And I thought, where did he get those tears? So I asked him, because I didn't pray and cry. I was raised in the generation of men don't cry. Men put their hands to the plow, drop the plow into the ground and go to work. So I went and talked to him about it, and he said this. He said, I was just like you, and then I asked God to give me my tears. So I asked God, Lord, I don't want to go through life hard-hearted, not touched by anything. I don't want to go through life without feeling what's going on around me. Lord, would you give me tears? Sometimes driving down the road, people look at my car and think I'm going crazy or I just lost my best friend. Because I'll put some music in or preaching in or I'll just be talking to the Lord. And if it's singing, I'm singing with him at the top of my lungs. And it doesn't take very long. And then them little faucets back there go, pink. Man, sometimes you just need a good old ugly cry. While you're worshiping. It's a sweet smelling savor to the Lord. Preacher friend of mine one time preached about how you can study this out. And I can't remember the references. But God puts our tears in a bottle. A vial. And in the message the man kept bringing up. He started with a big five gallon bucket and he went down to a thimble. And he said what could God hold your tears in? A little thimble, because you don't have many. 
When's the last time during the song service God just smote your heart? Or your heart just had such a thrill that you couldn't stop the tears from coming out? Oh, I'm a man's man. I ain't going to cry in public. I feel sorry for you. Everybody okay? I know it's going long. I am not my brother Steve, but tonight I might be. Amen. Reestablishment of worship. The type of worship comes from the heart, desiring to be right with God. I think a part of this worship started with repentance, just as Isaiah did. He saw the Lord, but then he saw himself. Woe is me. You might start your worship time with Psalm 139. You ever study that psalm? It's interesting. There's not a word on our tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Even the words you say in your head, but don't say out loud. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, where can I go to escape from your presence? I studied that out. Different commentators said different things, but one of them said this. He said, imagine what the psalmist is thinking about. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles a second. I'd love to go that fast sometime. And uh, they said, if you could lasso a ray of light as it was just peeking up over the morning and you could travel the, this, at the speed of light, boom. When you got to the end of the reach of that light bulb, God would be there waiting for you, asking you what took you so long. God's everywhere. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what you think. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the thoughts in your head. And, and as you wrap down and go down to the end of that psalm, David is examining himself and he cries out, search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Amen. Let's get our hearts right with God. Yes. Why? So we can have worship that is sweet. So we can fall before his throne, get on our knees before him, hold our hands up and cry out to him. Let the tears flow as our hearts are overwhelmed within us because of the goodness and the glory and the greatness of our God. Hallelujah. Number two. Oh, wait, I got some verses. Psalm 95 verse six says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 96, 9, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Psalm 29, 2, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. The pattern for revival in this chapter, number one, worship was first. Number two, they rebuilt the foundation. I won't take a lot of time on the last two points because I spent so much time already. Well, what does it mean to rebuild the foundation? We know what the foundation is. If you've ever done, been involved in building uh, up, up north and down south, the building process is totally different. Amen? When I was growing up, we framed houses. And so we'd show up on a job site. Foundation was already in. There were these cement walls and inside was still rock. And we'd start on the top of those cement walls and we'd, that was the foundation and then they'd go back in and fill it all in later and boom, there you have it. We go down south and uh, they dig a little footer in the ground around the pla- where the, the uh, house is going to be and then they pour a slab on the ground and that's it. 
No basement down south. The water table's too high. You'd have to be pumping that thing 24-7. And so uh, it's just different. So when we went to build our house, uh, I went to the uh, engineer and I said, uh, we're going to build a house. And he said, uh, what are the, what's the name of those walls? And I was, it wasn't an engineer, excuse me, it was the planning commission because in the county you can be your own general contractor. And uh, so I started talking to different people and I said, well, it's going to be an ICF uh, house. So the walls are six inches of concrete from floor to roof to ceiling to the top. And he said, well, you can't get by with a little 12 by 12 footer underneath for your foundation. It won't withstand the weight. There's a lot of Christians that are trying to build a life on a foundation of Sunday and Wednesday Christianity. The problem is the weight of life comes in and the foundation breaks. And unfortunately, that's the time that the Christian in that setting typically blames the church or blames God. We've got to have a foundation. Those guys said, well, typically the foundation on a house, if it was a two by six stick built, I think it was 16 by 12, but you've got to have 32 by 16. Well, can I tell you, I had already been involved in building. There's no way I was going to cheat on the foundation. They said three courses of five-eighths rebar all the way around. I put in five. They said 32 wide. I went 36. They said 16 deep. I went 20. I didn't care if it was just a little bit of extra money, five or ten yards of cement. It might be five or six hundred dollars, but guess what? I wanted my house to stand when I was done. As Christians, we should be over-engineering, not cutting corners. We've got to build a foundation. The foundation comes in our daily Bible reading. And listen, there's nothing wrong with our daily bread, but that's dessert. That's not meat. It's the meat of the word that we need for strength. The dessert tastes great, feels great, but if all you eat is dessert, you're going to end up malnourished. Amen. You remember when the Israelites came out of uh, the, 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 the wilderness? Throughout the wilderness, God had provided them with manna. So all they had to do is go out and gather it. When then they came into the, into the land of Canaan, all of a sudden, as Joshua there in the first uh, four, five, six chapters, uh, Joshua meets with the angel of the Lord, takes his shoe off and sh- sign a submission, and, and the angel of the Lord tells him th- some things that he's uh, going to have to do. And one of them is he was going to have to take out the old corn and make some cornbread. It's for all the Southerners in here, amen. <laughs> uh, the point being is no more manna. You're going to have to need something else. So you take that, that corn, you make some, and you, then you plan to take some and plant some. We have to have a foundation. Can you imagine as these Israelites put ourselves back in Ezra chapter 3 for a moment, these Israelites have finally been released from slavery, hard labor, 
all the things that they suffered under the hands of the Babylonians and then the Persians as all the different wars and battles were taking place. And they come out and they're given permission to go back and they get into Jerusalem and they see the temples gone. It's decimated. They've already seen the gates were broken down and the walls were broken down. They get in there and they know in their hearts that God has opened this door for them and they begin to worship. And then as one, they begin to labor. They begin to lay the foundation. Sorrow. Tears. But they knew what God had told them. Thirdly, first there is the reestablishment of worship. Secondly, the rebuilding of the foundation in verses 7 through 10. In verses 10 through 13, there is... The response. There's two responses here, and I want to just delineate, look at them just a little bit for a moment. Verses 12 and 13, there is response to tears. Let me just say this. God is merciful. He is long-suffering. But can I tell you that there is a price for sin? They began to lay the foundation and the ancient men, the men who had seen Solomon's temple, began to look and they realized this temple was not going to be as magnificent, as great, as large as the previous temple. And yes, there was gladness, I believe, in their hearts that the temple was being rebuilt But as we read in the passage, there are these tears of sorrow. And what I want us to understand or grasp, the application for that thought is this. Listen, if God is dealing with your heart about anything, please don't delay. Please don't put God off. Please don't wait. Please don't think, well, you know, I, you know it's, it, I don't really have an important role in the church right now. And, and, you know, I'm not married yet. Or I, don't, I haven't realized the full extent of my career path and all that yet. So, you know, these little things over here, they're no big deal. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Life is a big deal. Little things make big things. Does your patch club sing that song? Amen. Patch workers, little, step, little things make big things. I can't remember how it goes. Anyway, these men were looking at this and they began to weep with tears of sorrow. But then also, secondly, there was the response of joy in verses 10 and 11. God's house is going back up. They shouted so loud, everybody around them could hear. There is something about worshiping God and vocalizing. I'm sure you've all heard it. Bless God, you go to the sports game and scream to your horse. Come to church and sit there like a Protestant. (laughs) Or a New England Baptist. (laughs) Take your pick, right? (laughs) That's a joke. I want to see God revive. Not just my heart and my life or my church. I want to see God revive America. 
There was a point in time in history when America was the number one nation in the world for sending out missionaries. I was on deputation with a man from Wings of, e- Wings of Eagles, Wings as Eagles, Brother Ted Calap. He's home with the Lord now. But he was preaching a message back in 1996, and he said that at that time, America was number 16 in the world for sending out missionaries. When God revives, people get saved. When God revives His people, the effect will always be lost souls coming to Christ. When God revives, there is an there is an absolute obedience to the will of God in the lives of his people. And you'll begin to see people going because, listen, they know God's told me to go. I must go. All this is going to start with prayer. It's going to start with a desire before that because here's the fact, folks. You're going to do what you want to do. I was sitting in Bible class my second year of college. And uh, the professor got up and made a statement that kind of made me mad. His statement was, you're as close to God as you want to be. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, we're, you know, spiritual warfare. There's all kinds of enemies out there and all these reasons. Oh, no. You and I are as close to the Lord as we want to be. Because we do what we want to do. If you want to spend an hour in front of the TV or an hour with the Lord, you're going to do what you want to do. Amen. Everybody all right? Revival's possible. What would God do through Liberty Baptist Tabernacle if half of this congregation got completely right with God? Wasn't it D.L. Moody? Was it him that said the world has yet to see what God can do through the life of one totally surrendered? Mercy. God's done great things through people that weren't totally surrendered, I'm guessing. My, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to watch and see? Well, somebody has to want it. Somebody has to want it. I want to see the Lord work, and I've got to prove it by doing my part. Amen. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that even though Israel failed you so many times, even though in the Scripture they're recorded or they're described as being stiff-necked and hard-hearted, Father, every time Israel repented and turned to you, you forgave them, you restored them, you blessed them. Father, revive each one of us individually. Revive this church. Bless our time of invitation, Father, we ask. Meet with us. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.